It's hotter up here than it is down there. I've got to take my jacket off. If you have your Bibles with you, and I invite you to turn the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. The following appeared in the Post and Courier last week under the heading of hate groups. It read thusly, the Southern Poverty Law Center in Montgomery, Alabama, an organization that monitors hate groups and individuals counted 784 active hate groups in the United States in 2014. It includes hate group organizations that have beliefs or practices that attack or malign an entire class of people, typically for their immutable characteristics. Number one on the list is the Dixie Republic, and their hate crime is being neo-Confederate. Number two is the Southern National Congress. Their hate crime as well is being neo-Confederate. Other groups listed in the article are there because they are anti-immigrant, Ku Klux Klan, racist skinhead, neo-Nazi, black separatist, and white nationalist. But what I found most interesting was number three. Number three on the list is True Light Pentecost Church. And their hate crime was listed as being anti-LGBT. Now, I'm certainly not here to defend True Light Pentecost Church. I don't know that much about it. Went to their website. They have some unusual views about the Trinity. And I'm not particularly interested in the opinions or the the classifications of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm simply noting this for us, that here in print, in our local newspaper, is listed as a hate group, a group that holds to God's standard. Let me read once more how they define hate groups. Those who have beliefs or practices that attack or malign an entire class of people, typically for their immutable characteristics. Now let's follow this to its logical conclusion for just a minute. Immutably, unchangingly, over the entire course of human history, every human being who has ever been born, has been born into sin, and has been born a sinner. We cannot change that characteristic about ourselves. It is indeed immutable. Therefore, if a church seeks to tamper with this immutable characteristic in people, if we suggest that change needs to come to them, and if we try to introduce change into people's lives because we love them, will be considered a hate group. Now let's think about this. What brings change into people's lives? The gospel, right? Therefore, it seems to me that the day is coming or has already come when those who speak the gospel will be labeled as those who hate. Remains to be seen what our nation will do to those who wear the title hate group. But the question for us is, how prepared are we for that possibility? How shall we respond to it? How do we live as a church, as God's people, in such a culture? I hope Deuteronomy 18 will help us answer some of those questions this morning. 
So if you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy 18, we ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. Beginning in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 18, this is the word of the Lord. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you ask of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire any more, or we will die. The Lord said to me, what they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, once again, we are so thankful for the word that we hold in our hands this morning. Overwhelm us with the reality that what we hold is your word, it's your truth, and it's timeless. And through it, you bring change to our lives. And so we pray now, Father, that we would submit ourselves to the truth of your word as we come to it this morning. And we pray that you, O Spirit of God, would bring the transformation into our lives that you seek for us so that we might be more the people that you have called us to be in this world, and in this place in which you have planted us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to review again this morning, just one more time, this section of chapters and the flow of them. Because the flow of these chapters, it contains a vital truth that you and I need to embrace in our lives. So we go back to chapter 16, and and we remember that there, and that chapter is described for us these three great feasts, these three great annual celebrations that God has designed for his people. Immediately following the description of those three great feasts and the celebration that it calls in us and and the worship that it calls in us, the Lord takes us out of the temple and he drops us into the, the political world and the civic world. And he instructs his people to appoint judges and officials for each of their tribes. Then we come to the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17. And once again, God takes us out of the political world. He puts us back into the temple world. And he talks there about what is acceptable worship before him. And then God takes us out of the temple and he puts us back into this political world and he tells us people about how they are to design their law courts and eventually a monarchy. And that's the remainder of chapter 17. Then 
In chapter 18, God takes us out of this world and he puts us back in the temple. And there in the beginning verses of this chapter, it's a description of the priests and the Levites and how they should be treated as they minister before the Lord. And that brings us to our passage for this morning. So as we look at these chapters, we see this interweaving on the part of God, how God permeates all of life. And we're reminded once again that God does not allow his people to live a segmented life. A religious life of which he is the center and a secular life of which he has no part. Now the good news about this from God's perspective is that God never leaves his people. In all of life, there is God. There is no place where God is not, as scripture says, he is over all and through all and in all. God doesn't let his people go free. And so on this 4th of July weekend, we ought to be celebrating our non-independence from the Lord because he doesn't cut us loose and say, okay, go ahead, go there, go away, do, do, do your thing. No, instead, God has us in his grip and he will not let us go. Scripture tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself says, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Some would call that restrictive. Some would call that oppressive, but God calls that true freedom. True freedom is found when we are in the grip of God. Now, that's God's perspective. From our human perspective, we learn from the flow of these chapters that people who belong to God, we cannot successfully compartmentalize our lives. That does damage to the integrity of the whole being that God has created us to be. The whole being that God holds in his grip. Our problem comes as God's people when we try to live a life that's like the culture around us and we try to live a life befitting a child of God. And so we are two different people attempting to live in two different worlds. And you've probably experienced the turmoil or schizophrenia that results truly when you you try to be two different people, especially when those two worlds collide. Many Years ago, Kathy and I were invited to attend a completely non-related, non-church-related picnic. In fact, it was a, a picnic sponsored by the Elks Lodge. Well, a woman was there who knew us in the church context, and we knew this woman in the church context, so she was there at the Elks picnic, smoking a cigarette and drinking a drink. <gasps> Now, that didn't faze me and Kathy in the least. But she was of the generation that believed that there were two things the preacher and his Bible teacher wife should never see you doing. Smoking a cigarette and drinking a drink. So as this woman saw me and Kathy approaching, you could see the panic on her face. And she immediately put down her arm and just opened her fingers and let the cigarette fall to the ground. There wasn't anything she could do about the drink. But just as we walked up, the person with whom she had been chatting reached down and picked up the cigarette and said, Sue, you dropped your cigarette. Let me get it for you. 
So he reached down and he picked up the cigarette and started to hand it back to her. And then everything came like slow motion. As the cigarette approached her, you could see her thinking of the contingencies of each of her choices. (laughs) If she says, well, (laughs) that's not my cigarette. (laughs) Then her friend would know immediately she was crazy. But if she accepted the cigarette, then the preacher and his Bible teaching wife would knew that she smoked and drank. And so for this poor woman, there was a collision of her two worlds, pew sitter and Elks Club partier. I, you know if I say that, sorry. It's a collision that has to come. Now look with me in verse nine. When you enter the land, the Lord your God is giving you. Do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Okay, now look in verse 14. The nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery and divination, but as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. So here we have in these two verses, verse 9 and verse 14, two different worldviews. They're described for us and they're placed side by side. There is the worldview of the culture and the promised land that God's people are entering. And that worldview is informed by divination, sorcery, omens, witchcraft, and so forth. And then we have the worldview of God, God's people. And that's informed by the truth of God himself, spoken by God himself to his prophets. Now, since both of these worldviews exist simultaneously in the same world, God's people have options. One option for God's people is this. Exchange one view for another. Perhaps abandon the truth of God and embrace and accept and and practice what's going on in the culture around you. A second option is accommodation, syncretizing, a blending of the two worldviews, picking and choosing the best of each or what is more convenient or easiest about each one without completely embracing either one. The third option is for a collision in the world between these two worldviews. Bam. Well, which option does God want for his people? Clearly, number one is out. And my prayer is that no one is here this morning who is considering the first option, which is abandoning the truth of God for the chaos and the confusion that comes with uh, the the worldview of our culture. The second option, that's the easiest for us and that's the most attractive for us. Uh, Accommodation to our culture. Incorporation of the lifestyles and the practices and the beliefs that we see around us. Just incorporate those into our lives and somehow try to fit uh, the world's worldview with God's worldview in such a way that there's no collision, because we don't like the collision. Collisions are messy, there's broken glass, mangled metal, sometimes mangled bones, and none of us wants that kind of thing in our lives. So we try to avoid the collision. But here's the thing, we can't. We can't avoid the collision and be true to God's word. The collisions must come. And that's why God chooses option three for his people. Look again in verse nine. Hear it again. When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways 
of the nations there. And so if the question before us this morning is how we are to live our lives as God's people that operates from a different view than God's, here is our answer. Do not learn to imitate their ways. The Hebrew word for learn here, it has a range of meanings, but all of them are related. To be accustomed to, to exercise in diligently, to be expert in, to be skillful at. God says, don't, don't get accustomed to the world's ways. Don't exercise them. Don't become expert or skillful in them. And so it's not just a quick brush with culture that we're talking about. It's like, oh, I didn't, sorry, God, I didn't, know, I didn't know what I was doing. No, God is speaking here about intentionality. Because you and I are tempted. We actually want to imitate things that are appealing to us or attractive to us. And so when God's people enter into the promised land, they're going to see different nations, different cultures. And there are going to be aspects or elements of the practices of those cultures that might be attractive to God's people. Perhaps it would be on moral issues. You know, practices or lifestyles says, do whatever you want to do. It doesn't make any difference. That's appealing to people. It could be related to the religious practices. You know, maybe they would be attracted to, to the tangible nature of their worship. Here's an actual pole. Here's an actual idol that I can bow down to. Hey, we get to play with animal livers and entrails and, and kind of mix them around and predict the future. Maybe that would be appealing to God's people because they weren't particularly happy with an unseen God who said, do not make an image of me. I don't know what it might be. But whatever it is that may attract or appeal to them, in that culture, God says, don't learn to imitate it. In other words, God is saying, or in essence, he's saying, when you see their ways, and when you go into the promised land and note that the practices of the nations there are inconsistent with and incompatible with the truth that I've spoken to you, turn away. Turn away. Don't entertain the practices. Don't toy with them. Don't accommodate them. Or before you know it, almost imperceptibly, you'll be skillful and expert in them. Practice makes perfect. What are you practicing? I had a seminary professor who always told us to beware of practicing brinkmanship in our lives. Coming right up to the brink coming right up to the very edge of the abyss of sin, even looking over into it. Don't do it, he said, because eventually you'll fall. Stay away. Stay back. Don't come close. How close are you coming to the brink, to the edge? Are you making accommodations with the world? What are they? How are you incorporating, if you are, the world's worldview into God's worldview. Because I know this is true from the word of God. It will not end in a good place for you. It will not. It will not end in a healthy place, a place of peace or blessing. There is no meeting in the middle. There is no meeting in the middle. There is no compromise between God's worldview and the worldview of the culture around us. No compromise. So God says, do not learn to imitate the ways of the culture around you. This is God's command to his people. And what is it that God is seeking to achieve by commanding 
his people thusly. Look back in chapter 17, verse 7. You must purge the evil from among you. Now God makes that statement in relation to their worship. Get the evil out of their worship practices. Now look in 17, chapter 12. You must purge evil from the land of Israel. This is in connection with their political world, with, with murder cases and lawsuits and assaults. Now look with me in verse, chapter 18, verse 13. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So here's God's purpose for us, for his people in the world. No compromise. By God's design, by God's design, the world and the hope for the world literally depends on God's people watching their lives carefully. The world literally depends on God's people not accommodating to the prevailing culture, not incorporating it into our lives. Where will truth be found if God's people let it go? Where will hope be found if God's people don't offer it? Where will the beauty of a life lived as God created and designed life to be lived, where will it be displayed if it's not displayed in the lives of God's people? It isn't God's call on our lives to accommodate or incorporate. It isn't God's call on our lives to to run from the collision. It isn't our calling to soften the impact of that collision. It's compassion that is misplaced and it's compassion that is wrongly defined to just say, oh, just let people be. Let them do what they want to do. You do your thing. I'll do mine. Do-da, do-da. You do your thing, I'll do mine. Oh, do-da day, you know? Many feel like our world has drastically changed. Our city has changed in the last few weeks. Now we think our country has, is drastically different. But what has really changed for us as God's people? See, our situation is as it always has been. And it has always been God's view, God's truth against the culture of the world. Go back to the beginning of, of human history. Cain and Abel. You know, what did Abel actually do to his brother Cain? Nothing. He didn't cheat him. He didn't beat him. He didn't scold him or belittle him or reject him in any way. All Abel did was love and follow God. He brought a sacrifice that came from his heart. It was his best and God accepted it. And Cain could tell that something was different about Abel and Abel's sacrifice. That it did come from his heart and that God accepted it. And so the collision came and we know what that collision was. Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem and he recounts its very long history and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. See, they they didn't embrace God's truth or God's worldview for themselves and so the collision came and the prophets died. Fast forward to the New Testament church. Acts chapter 8. Stephen is speaking of the the glories of Christ. But those around him didn't want to hear about the glories of Christ or the gospel. 
Because they didn't want the changes that must come to their lives if they embraced it, so the collisions came. And Stephen was stoned to death. And the church was persecuted so badly that they had to flee Jerusalem. Their culture was against them. We would be here literally more than all day long if I attempted to recount all the clashes and all the collisions of God's truth with the cultures of the world. We may not want the collision. We don't. We may not have historically as a nation been accustomed to such a severe collision, but here it is, as it has always been. But now here's what gives me hope. This is so incredible to me. You and I are here this morning. We are reading out of this same book. You and I are hearing the exact same truths that God's people heard when they were gathered before Moses on the plains of Moab well over 3,000 years ago. Here we are, still with it. Yet those other cultures, the ones that they'll encounter in the promised land, the Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites, and those are just the easy ones to pronounce. Where are those cultures? They're gone. But God and his truth continues to work in the world. God and his truth continues to change and transform the world. And I think that that is compelling reason in and of itself for faith in this truth and for trust in the God that it so beautifully describes for us. Here in Deuteronomy 18, God is preparing his people for that collision. Do not learn to imitate their ways. Listen to my prophet. That's simple. Do not listen to their ways. Listen to my prophet. We celebrate July 4th this weekend. Our minds wander back to the very beginning of our country 400 years ago. We think about when we became an independent nation. And we look around and we say, what have we become? But I think we're asking the wrong question. If we look at our culture now and say, why us, Lord? Why is this happening? I think the inscrutable question is, why not us? Why not now? Why, Lord, has it taken so long? Is it because we as a church have been so faithful? No, I think we've rather been self-indulgent. Why do we deserve preferential treatment? What have we done with that preferential treatment when we had it? Prayer in public schools, prayer in public places, Blue laws that shut down everything on Sunday morning so Christians could go and worship. See, we have embraced as a right what has only been ours because of God's grace. Why, Lord, did you give us grace in this way for so long? And what did we do with it when we had it? Now we fret. We fume. It's been going on a lot. Fred, we fume over this flurry of talk about churches who are going to lose their tax-exempt status if we don't fall in line with what the federal government now sanctions. I'm telling you, we cannot avoid the collision of God's truth and the culture of this world, a Christless view of our world. But our calling continues to be what it has always been on God's people of all time. And God's word is very plain about this. Turn in the New Testament. Come on. Give a little activity. Wake up. 
Philippians chapter 2. New Testament, Philippians, little book. Chapter 2, verse 14. God's word tells us there to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Here's our call. Blameless, innocent children of God in a crooked and twisted culture. The word translated crooked is scolios, which means to be bent or curved. And it's simply where we get the word scoliosis. The second word translated twisted means distorted or deformed. And that word was used to describe an object on the wheel of a clumsy potter. He finishes and he's so bad. You say, what in the world is that supposed to be? It's so misshapen. And so Paul says this is the generation that surrounded him, distorted and misshapen and bent and crooked. It sounds familiar to me. So what do we do? And where's our hope? (laughs) Glad you asked. Look at verse 15. Here's our hope. The Lord your God will raise, I'm sorry, verse 15 of Deuteronomy. Don't stay in Philippians. Go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Here's our hope. And who is Jesus other than the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king? Even here on the plains of Moab, on the plains of Moab, before they enter the promised land, God is preparing his people for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who said when he came, Jesus himself, for I have not spoken on my own authority, But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Here it is. Fulfillment. Deuteronomy, verse 18, chapter 15, verse 15. Jesus is the truth. And I love the imagery of verse 18 here, that God will raise up a prophet for you. Look, out of the mire and out of the muck and out of the confusion, God is going to raise one up. He's going to lift one up. He's going to elevate one at whom we can look, one at whom we can follow. Jesus is the truth. And if we follow him, he'll lead us out of the muck and the mire. Do you believe that? It's Christ, the true living word. And the true written word, that's the plumb line. Jesus is the truth. He's the plumb line for us. He is the standard against which we measure everything. And where any idea or where any philosophy doesn't line up with the truth of who Jesus is and the truth that he proclaims to us, the deformity will become evident. The truth of Christ will show it for what it is. And so when you and I hold up the person of Christ in our culture, when we hold up the truth of God in our culture as the plumb line, our culture will be exposed. It's crookedness, it's bentness, it's deformity. Now, who wants to be told you're crooked or deformed? Oh, honey, don't go out looking like that. No, we don't want to hear that we are 
crooked or deformed or that there's any imperfection about us. And so as a result, the collision will come. It's inevitable. Alexander McLaren says in his commentary, a true Christian ought to be a standing rebuke to the world, an incarnate conscience. And that's what we are. A living conscience present in a world who doesn't want us to be there. So you and I can't expect the government to be our shield as God's people. We can't expect the government to be our protector. That's God's job. Because the government, in fact, may become our prosecutor or our persecutor. John Stott writes, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. But we can't recoil. We can't accommodate. We can't incorporate. But neither can we keep quiet or silent about the truth. And then we must accept the consequences. You and I, we will be labeled as those who hate because in actuality, we are those who love. You and I, I hope, love enough to address this immutable characteristic with which everyone is born, and that is sin. And I hope we love enough to suggest that change must come and that change can come through the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who has taken care of our sin problem. He paid the price for our sin that separates us from God forever by dying on the cross. And God says, you know what? I accept this payment as satisfactory. And he proved it by raising Christ again from the dead. Jesus says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. The world may hate us. Jesus says it will. But we don't get to hate the world that the Father has created because the, the Father thinks this world and the people in it are worth redeeming. Did you know that? God thinks that this world and the people in it are worth redeeming. And so he bothers to allow the world to continue so that you and I can permeate this world with the good news of the gospel. Jesus said, he made this request to the Father. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You and I are to be in the world. If we go back to that passage in Philippians chapter 2, that's what we read. We're to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked generation. That's where you and I are to be. That's how we are to relate to our generation, our culture. Positionally, spatially, temporally, we are to be right in the middle of it. That's where we belong. That's where we found Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us that at his birth, what? The word became flesh and made his dwelling where? Among us. What about during his life? Where do we find Jesus? Sitting at a table, having dinner with notorious sinners, adulterers, adulteresses, prostitutes. So much so that he earned the title friend of sinners in the midst of his culture. 
And where did we find Jesus at his death? Well, John tells us this. Here they crucified him, with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the midst, right in the middle. There was Jesus, two criminals on either side. The presence of Christ caused faith in one so that Jesus said to him, brother, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus' presence hardened the other, hardened him in his sin, and he continued to hurl insults at Jesus. But there was Jesus right in the middle. Our job is not to hate the generation, the culture around us, even those who pervert the truth of God. Our job is not to retreat into a holy huddle or go into spiritual isolation or throw up walls that keep us from them and them from us. We are to be in the world. And our calling, the calling of the church, the calling of God's people is what it was long before there was ever a Supreme Court. It's always been to shine like stars with the light of Christ. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. There we have it. Do not imitate the ways of the world. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. Shine like a star, distinguishable from the world around you. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to speak for me. And I'm done, so you can relax. I am so excited about the days ahead. Truly, truly. Maybe it's because I'm getting old. But I'm excited about the days ahead. Because things are changing so quickly, I can't get my mind around how quickly things are changing. And it seems to me that God is shaking things up. It seems to me that God is drawing a line in the sand. So I believe that God must be up to something. And if God is up to something, guess who's going to be right in the middle of what God is up to? Who? Us, the church. We're going to be right in the middle of it. So there's no more nebulous living for believers, one foot in one world and one foot in the other. God is exposing us for who we are. He is. We won't expose ourselves. God is exposing us. As children of God and people of truth, we cannot hide. You and I have got to come out, take a stand for Christ, and know that God is with us and God is for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we are thankful for your truth. Speaking it to us, preserving it for us, not mincing your word so that we're not sure exactly what you might mean. You say clearly what you mean to us. You've said it this morning. Do not imitate the ways of the world. So Lord, now in the next few moments as We prepare to come to your table as the children come over. We're just going to remain silent before you with our heads bowed and just ask you, Spirit of God, to help us examine our lives and reveal to us the ways that we have accommodated or 
incorporated the, the culture that's around us and the ways of the culture around us. Maybe more importantly, Lord, you'll reveal to us why we do that. What is it that we fear will happen to us if we don't accommodate and incorporate? And if it is indeed, Lord, motivated by fear, I pray that you would replace that fear in us by faith and by trust in you and in your truth and in your presence with us and in your power with which you work on behalf of your people and your church. So Lord, I pray that you will do that work in us as we pray silently before you. Thank you, Lord, for the work of your spirit. We'll just kind of continue in prayerfulness and reflection. Fred comes and plays and wait for the children and preparing ourselves to come to the table of the Lord.